Um, we're going to, for the remainder of our time this morning, uh, we're going to pick up in the book of Matthew, um, chapter 22. And so I invite you to turn there. Um, we're just going to dive right in uh, from uh, Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 15. This is Jesus' confrontation with uh, another confrontation with the religious establishment there in Jerusalem. And so uh, if you're able and willing, I invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 15. It says, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you're true and teach the way of God truthfully and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. And then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled. They left him, and they left him and went away. The same day, the Sadducees came to him, who say, There is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and the third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You're wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am, Ab- I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. The word of God. You may be seated. So we're going to look at this passage here this morning. I'm calling this sermon Questioning Christ Part 1. It means there's a part 2 coming. We're going to look at this passage under two headings. Number one, astonishing wisdom on the world. And number two, astonishing teaching on marriage. Astonishing wisdom on the world and astonishing teaching on marriage. So we have here this morning Jesus astonishing the people with his answers. They're trying to trap him as they are prone to do because they hate him, the religious leaders. They're trying to trap him in their words. But Jesus' answers are not only amazingly wise and shrewd responses to escape their traps, but also their profound wisdom about two very important aspects of life. And that is the Christian's relationship to government, which is we need to understand today. And also, too, uh, teaching concerning the true nature of marriage. And government and marriage are two of uh, the most important things we'll deal with in life. Okay? And so, and so we want to think of carefully about what Jesus is saying this morning. First, we're going to 
look at Jesus' astonishing wisdom on the world. So as they're laying a trap, they come to him and they begin by heaping on the flattery. They say, teacher, we know you are true and teach the way of God truthfully and you do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances. Jesus, you're so brave. You're so courageous. You don't care what other people think. Tell us this. And so they're heaping on the flattery. Jesus doesn't even need to be divine to see right through their transparent words to, their, to the hypocrisy in their hearts. And, and so Jesus says, why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? Okay, he knows that what they're doing is just a manipulative way to try to pin Jesus into speaking into a highly controversial issue. Okay, and not only this, but when they, when they come to him, they bring some Herodians. Okay, and so... And so you got to understand that as they pose this question, they're putting their finger on one of the most controversial issues of their day. What was the proper relationship of Israel with respect to their Roman overlords? And opinions were diverse, right? You had the Herodians on one side who, remember, King Herod had his authority over Israel because of the Roman government. The Roman government had appointed him king over that region of Israel. Okay, And there also were the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees would have been much more wary towards Roman occupation. And the Sadducees, who were mostly priests, would have kind of leaned more with the Herodians, more supportive of the Roman occupation. But of course, aside from all that, the common people didn't care for the Roman occupation at all. And especially there was another group called the Zealots, who were so zealous, we could say, for political freedom that they were willing to try to take it by violence which was not a good idea against the Roman army. But you have all these people, and notice they approach Jesus with this question with Pharisees and Herodians. So they they come to him with this question with people on two sides of the question, right? So imagine somebody comes up to you intentionally with a crowd of Republicans and Democrats and then asks you your opinion on abortion. (laughs) That's a trap, Right? You got a decision to make. How are you going to answer? How are you going to respond? Right? The question was, was it lawful to pay taxes to Rome? Lawful meant lawful with respect to God's law. Right? That's the question that they're asking. Is it lawful with respect to God's law that they should pay taxes to Rome? The tax was probably the census tax or the tribute tax which Rome demanded on all its subjugated peoples. And so that would have been the specific tax that most clearly symbolized Israel's subservience to, to Rome. Okay? And in fact, um, okay, well, before I get there, so the question is, uh, so the issue is this, okay? If he said that they should pay the tax, he would alienate most of the common people, right? If he says they shouldn't pay the tax, well, then what? Well, what happens when you don't pay the government their taxes? They're going to come looking for you. And Rome did not put up well to insurrectionists and rebels. And so Jesus responds to their crafty question with an even more astonishingly shrewd answer. He said, show me a denarius, the coin for the tax, a denarius, a day's wage for a, a day laborer. And on a denarius, there would have been the head, the, the, uh, the, 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 um, the image there of uh, Tiberius Caesar. 
Tiberius Caesar. And in fact, there would have been an inscription there along with Tiberius' head describing Tiberius as the son of a god. The son of a god. In fact, to, to um, some Jews, the coin itself would have been quite offensive, identifying Tiberius Caesar as the son of the god. But Jesus amazingly looks at the coin that they have to pay the tax with and shows it around and says, whose picture is this? Well, it's Caesar's. Well, then give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. You see, they didn't expect such a wise and brilliant answer from Jesus. And so while Jesus is at one time kind of evading the trap that they're setting for him, he also is giving us some profound wisdom about the nature of the relationship between the church and government, which is something that every Christian needs to think about today. Careful readers of the Bible will understand that, especially if you've read the Old Testament, especially the book of Daniel, which really emphasizes this, but the Bible teaches that All human government, all kings and kingdoms are ultimately established by God. Did you know that? All human kingdoms are ultimately established by God. God showed Nebuchadnezzar by his various ways, especially by making him think he was a a beast of burden for a while. He showed Nebuchadnezzar, who is the king of the most powerful empire in the world, that he isn't king, God is. And he allowed Nebuchadnezzar to be king for a season in history according to his will and his purposes. Why is that important? Because it's important to remember that God controls it all. And that's important because we need to understand that God has a plan and a purpose in this world that goes beyond mere mere politics. And that will help you when you believe that and understand that. That's going to help you not to get caught up in this um, political idolatry that we live in today. You know why the last president, Donald Trump, you know why he was elected? Because God wanted him to be. Do you know why Joe Biden is president right now? Because God wants him to be. You got a problem with that? You take it up with God. That doesn't mean God approves of everything that's going on, but it does mean this, that God is sovereign over the United States of America. And who he wants to be president is going to be president. Doesn't mean we have to like all the policies about it, but guess what? God has a plan and will use even the, the, he will use the good and the evil that people do to accomplish his good will in the world. God used the evil of The Roman prefect Pontius Pilate and the Roman soldiers to do what? To forgive the sins of the world. In the crucifixion of his son. God is sovereign over all these things. So we need to understand that. And we need to understand also this. That it says, Paul says in Romans 13, that God ordains the government to keep peace, reward good, and to punish evil. So I think the best way to think about this is to understand that God has ordained various spheres for different entities. I think think the, 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 the three basic fundamental structures God has ordained in society is the family, the church, and the government. Okay? God has ordained each of those. Each of those has huge responsibilities in their sphere of influence. 
Okay? But we must be careful not to confuse the sphere of influence. God is the ultimate authority, and he sets up other levels of authority that we are to honor. So when God says to honor your parents, which is, the, which is one of the most important commandments, probably the most important commandments when it comes to human relationships and society, honor your father and your mother. Well, guess what? If you don't honor your father and your mother, who are you dishonoring? God. When, when Paul and Peter say, obey your leaders in the church, who are you dishonoring when you don't obey proper authority in the church? God. When Peter says, honor the emperor, when the emperor, by the way, go read a history book, emperors weren't saints. And when Paul says, honor the emperor, and you dishonor the emperor, who are you dishonoring? God. So it doesn't matter whether you like your political leaders or not. If God has established government and you want to honor God, you honor political leaders. Again, it doesn't mean you, you like everything that they do, but it means that you acknowledge that in honoring the structures that God has established, you are honoring God. That's huge. The, now, when it comes to government, again, Paul in Romans 13 says government exists to keep peace, reward good, and to punish evil. That is the proper sphere of the government. The government can and should do things that the church, for example, shouldn't do. Right? The government exists to keep peace, to reward good, and to punish evil. Right? And so the government should exist. If somebody breaks the law, they need to get in trouble for it. They need to learn that you can't violate laws and, and, and human rights that God has established, that people are made in the image of God, and to violate that is to violate God. The, the government should uphold that, and it should do that in a way the church can. The, I believe the Bible is very clear on this, even though people disagree, that the government does have the right to execute capital punishment. And I believe that, that's, that it's, it's there, because why? To prevent, to prevent evil. Okay? But the church which the, the church messed this up in the Middle Ages, the church doesn't exist to execute capital punishment. That's not the sphere of the church. That's the sphere of the government. Just like it's not the sphere of the family. So each, each structure has its own sphere, but it all exists to serve the goodness and the, the, and the, and the glory of God. I would argue that the, gov- the, church, the church doesn't exist for the government. The government doesn't understand this. But the, 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 the church doesn't exist for the government. The government exists for the church. The government exists to keep peace and to keep society ordered so that free people can freely worship God. But still we're called to give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. But if at any point, of course, God is the authority of all authorities. So if at any point, a parent or a church leader or the government tells you to do something or commands you to do something that would be in disobedience to God, God's authority supersedes all authority. So that means, and by the way, you can bless God that we haven't had to choose too much here in America, but that is just simply not the case for many of 
maybe even most of our brothers and sisters across the world, where they are faced with the decision of either breaking the law or obeying God. And you need to think real carefully about when that, when that time comes in America, what are you going to do? You need to think about that. Because that will come with its cost. But if obedience to the government would mean disobedience to God, I know there's a cop in here, but I'm going to tell you to break the law. You can arrest me later. <laughs> but if disobedience to the government means if obedience to the government means disobedience to God, I'm telling you to obey God. That's what I'm telling you. So Jesus, he confounds them, he astounds them with this wisdom about the relationship between God's people and the world. And then next here, we see that Jesus is astounding them, astonishing them with his teaching on marriage, with his teaching on marriage. He come, it's this passage with the Sadducees here, and you're probably familiar with it, okay? Uh, he's, they say, if, if a man dies having no children, the brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brothers. There were seven brothers among us. The first married and died. Having no offspring uh, left, and uh, having no offspring left his wife to his brother, so too the second and the third down to the seventh. After all of them, the woman died in the resurrection. Whose wife will she be? So, what does that question? What does that question mean? Well, so the the Sadducees are basically raising this very hypothetical situation to show in their mind that the resurrection is an absurd concept. Well, what does that have to do with anything? Well, again, the Sadducees are kind of partnering, they weren't, they weren't all friendly with the Pharisees per se, but a common enemy makes strange friends. And, and so they're kind of working together, trying to trap Jesus in his words. Now the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. The Sadducees differed from the Pharisees in that they only believed in the Pentateuch, which was the first five books of the Bible. Okay, so they actually only believed in the first five books of the Bible, whereas the Pharisees believed the, the whole Old Testament, the whole Hebrew Bible. And so actually Jesus was actually theologically much closer, quite close actually to the Pharisees. The problem with the Pharisees is they were just legalistic hypocrites. That was their problem. But theologically, they were often correct. Okay, so, but the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. Okay, and the clearest passages um, about the resurrection um, often come in the prophets, which they didn't believe. Okay. So they asked him this hypothetical question to try to, 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 to get him, to try to trap him. The question deals around this idea of what's called liverite, liver, liverite marriage. And so if you've, if you've read the Bible through before, you will have encountered this. Okay, but liverite marriage was this practice where if a brother was married and died leaving no offspring, one of his brothers had to take his, his widow and the first son of that Union would be considered the the original brother's child. Okay, it legally, even though that 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 man was dead, his brother would take his widow, and the first son born would be considered legally the dead brother's son. Legally, his son. Why? 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 Why do that? Well, in remember, if you you read the Old Testament, okay, if you look back. Family is of huge importance. Offspring is of huge importance. 
in their thinking, the way a person lived on after death was through their family line. Which is why one of the greatest curses that could befall a person in the Old Testament, and which is why in some of the imprecatory Psalms, you know, where they would pray things like, wipe out his offspring and his children. Why would they pray things like, why would they say things like that? Because the worst curse in their mind that could befall a person is having no offspring to carry on your name. Because if you had no offspring to carry on your name, it was like you never existed. And, and in some sense, and I do think it's true that the, the idea of a perpetual offspring is kind of a typology of what it means to have eternal life. The promise of a perpetual offspring is the promise that you will live forever. Your name will live forever. And that gets picked up as the promise of eternal life in the New Testament. Okay? And so... That's why it was so important. And that's why it was such a profound duty of the brother to do this duty for his dead brother because you'd be, you'd, you'd be preserving him offspring. And to not do that would have shown a remarkable disdain for your brother. Okay? Now, now think about this. Now, now think about this what's happening. The first brother dies, so the second takes the, the widow. Now, now, if you read, again, you read the Old Testament, you see that this issue comes up from time to time, and oftentimes, you know, the person who's supposed to do this responsibility doesn't want to do it. And you can imagine why, you know, maybe you didn't like your wife's brother. <laughs> I mean, your, your brother's wife. Maybe you didn't like her, you know, you don't want to marry her, okay? Now, and, and there's all different kinds of problems it can cause with the inheritance of your own children and things like that. So there were reasons why a brother might not want to do this. So choosing to do this would be an act of faith in God, trust in his obedience, trust in obedience to him. Okay. So in their in their hypothetical situation, the first brother dies, and so the second takes his widow. Now. And then so on, and then that brother dies, and the third takes the widow, and so on and so forth, until all seven brothers die, and then the woman dies. Now, first of all, now just now, I just want you to be aware that that they're they're trying to prove the resurrection absurd. But this question is crazy. I mean, let's say your brother number seven and six of your brothers has died being married to this woman. <laughs> Ain't no way I'm gonna marry her because she's either a really bad cook or something bad. Something bad's going on. Okay, she killed six of your brothers. All right, I ain't gonna be next in line. All right, but so, <laughs> so, but this hypothetical situation. Okay, she buried she buried seven brothers and then she dies. Okay, if there is a resurrection, whose wife will she be? Well, on the face of the question, you're like, okay, that makes sense. The resurrection doesn't, you know, there can't be a resurrection because that that's crazy. How could that how could that make sense? What does Jesus have to say about that? Well, he doesn't have much to say. You're wrong. You're wrong. Why? Because you don't understand the scriptures nor the power of God. They're wrong. In other words, if they had read their Bibles correctly, and if they knew what God was able to do, they would understand they would understand that the resurrection life is going to be markedly different than this life. It's going to be markedly different 
than this life. And this passage here gets us to a very important point about marriage that is worth grasping. Okay? Even though he's... I don't know if that's necessarily the point, but it teaches us something that is really not taught anywhere else, but it's a very important point about marriage. If they had understand, if they had understood the scriptures and the power of God, they would understand that resurrection life will be markedly different than this present life. How is that? Well, one of the things that Jesus teaches here quite clearly is that in the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. We won't be married in heaven. So that actually obliterates that problem, right? Because in heaven, you're not married to anybody, okay? That's why, that's why when people say vows, whether they realize it or not, almost all wedding vows spoken today are Christian vows, whether they realize it or not, because that is why the Christian vow says, till death do us part. Why? Because when one of the spouses dies, you are no longer married, you're, you're, you're no longer married. Now, of course, that, that bothers some of us, and that's understandable because there's a sense in which, you know, you, you just, you, obviously you're very close to your spouse. It's hard to think of not being married to them in heaven. Of course, I believe we're gonna, you're, you're going to have close, a close and special relationship with your spouse or spouses in heaven, you know, if you remarry after, you, uh, after your spouse dies, okay? You're going to have special relationship, but still... You won't be married. Why? Because marriage is a pointer to something greater. What I always say, and what I think is important to remember, is that marriage is a picture, right? It's a picture. If, I, if, if, Meg, if my wife, for example, flies to Boston and leaves me with six kids, just hypothetically speaking, okay, and, and, and I have a picture of her, and I'm looking at the picture because I miss her, and I want her to come home, and I'm looking at this picture, and then she comes home, I don't keep looking at the picture. I put the picture down because the reality is here. In the same way, marriage is a picture. In Ephesians 5, Paul says marriage is a picture of the relationship that Christ has with the church and church has with Christ. And so... Marriage is a picture, but when the reality comes, when Christ comes to fully show us what it is like to belong to him, we can put the picture aside. Okay? We can put the picture aside. So marriage is what? It is both more important and less important than we think. It is more important because the picture that marriage is supposed to picture is greater than almost anything you can imagine. Any aspect of your marriage that does not show the love of Christ towards his people and the love of his people towards her Christ is a shortcoming in your marriage. It's more important than we think. It's also less important than we think. And this is especially, it's especially difficult for single people, especially who really want to be married, but the truth of the matter is marriage isn't ultimate. And you don't, you, don't never, you don't have to be married to have all that God wants for you. And marriage is, in fact, temporary because we will not be married in the resurrection. I remember I read a book by John Piper before I got married called This Momentary Marriage. I highly recommend the book. But in the book, he talks about what I just talked about, the importance of marriage, but he also talks about how it's, it's temporary. And in fact, he almost kind of, he's kind of making this point of like, you know, marriage is wonderful, but... Only Jesus 
your spouse can't even, as great as a spouse is, your spouse can't satisfy the deepest longings of your heart. Only Jesus can, right? And it's temporary. And, and, and towards the end of the book, he even kind of like, he's trying, to get, he's trying to be a realist. He's trying to be a realist, but he ends up coming off kind of like being a downer on marriage. And I was like, dude, I'm about to get married. I, I want to read a, a happy book about marriage, not telling me how not, how not important as it is as I think it is. <laughs> but anyways, it's, it's more important and less important than we think it is. Because why? Because marriage is a picture. It's a picture of something more glorious Vastly more glorious than marriage itself. And when the reality comes, the picture can be put away. So Jesus then shows them, Jesus finally then goes on to show them their ignorance of the scriptures. Okay, and what's interesting about this is because he knows that their, their root question, their root question wasn't about marriage. He's, he's told us something deeply profound about marriage, but the root question didn't have to do with marriage. It was about resurrection, Right? And so what does he do? He proves to them the resurrection. But where does he do it? Remember I said the Sadducees only believed in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Where does Jesus quote from? The Pentateuch. He could have quoted from, there's lots of passages very clear about the resurrection in Daniel and Isaiah, but they didn't believe the prophets. So he quoted from the Pentateuch. What did he quote? He says, as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now, at first, when you read that, you think, what in the world does that have to do with the resurrection? But if you think about what Jesus is saying, it, it gives you a window into the mind of a man, more than a man, but a man who has thought and meditated on the scriptures more than we could ever comprehend. And his insight at this point is so profound that only, only Jesus could think to turn to this passage to defend the resurrection. But that's only, he's only able to do that because he's thought so deeply about each verse, each word, and its implications for truth. How does this verse support the resurrection? Well, think about it. When God came to Moses and identified himself as the God of Abraham... The God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He said what? He said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And remember, when God would later tell Moses his name, he would say what? I am the I am. The I am. Right? He didn't say, he didn't say, I was the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He said, I am. What does that mean? It means he, it was, he wasn't just their God then. God is saying, I'm their God right now. Well, guess what? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are all dead when he's talking to Moses. All of them, all three of them, they're dead when he's talking to Moses. And yet God says, I am their God. And Jesus is able to look beyond the words, down into the, the, the depths of the meaning of that verse and to say that's because all people still live to God. And so Jesus's logic seems to be this, that since he not was their God, but still is their God, that means they're still alive with respect to God. And that means one day their life is going to be manifested in a resurrection. 
He wasn't just their God in the past. He's their God in the present. That means what? It means that he's going to be their God in the future. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So literally in a few sentences, he's able to obliterate the Sadducees' bad theology. Because the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob is still their God today. The God of the resurrection. So what have we seen today? So Jesus, he's escaping their traps. They're trying to trap him. But what we see is that he has astonishing wisdom. Astonishing wisdom on the world and astonishing wisdom on marriage. And we need to learn from that. And as I close this morning, I just, I'll just reflect back on that picture of marriage that we talked about. In Ephesians 5, Paul said that he calls husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church, okay, and gave himself up for her that he might cleanse her by the washing of water with the word so that she might be pure and spotless without blemish, okay? The picture there is that a husband is supposed to love their wives as Christ loved the church to the point of self-sacrifice. Why? Because that's how Jesus loved us, right? What is that? That's the gospel. That's the gospel. Jesus, Jesus gave himself for us. And if you read throughout the Old Testament, you read throughout the Old Testament, God refers to Israel as an adulterous bride because she, she committed idolatry, which was worshiping other gods. In other words, she was cheating on God. So the picture of the scripture is this. The picture of the scripture is this, is that God has loved an unfaithful bride. Who is that? It's me. And it's you. So what is the gospel? The gospel is this. God, despite what you've done, despite how long you've done it, if you'll turn and come to him, he'll take you back. He'll take you back. That's the gospel. And not only will he take you back, but he'll wash you and cleanse you and adorn you and make you more beautiful than you ever were before. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so maybe somebody in here this morning, you need to come to Jesus. You need to find that relationship with God that you can only have through him. I pray you'll do it today. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for...